Our sermon text today is Exodus chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Well, 60 years ago today, March 17, 1959, President Dwight Eisenhower hosted a special guest for St. Patrick's Day, the president of Ireland, Sean O'Kelly. I don't think you'd get more Irish than that name unless it was Seamus, right? As one newspaper writes, the scene was set for an almighty diplomatic splurge. It said the menu included prosciutto and melon, cream of watercress soup, celery hearts and olives, then, Lobster Newbergs. Does anybody know what that is? I had no idea what that was. Carla does. Uh, lobster Newbergs are made from lobster, butter, cream, cognac, sherry, eggs, and cayenne pepper. Then came cucumber sandwiches, and then finally, the main course. Roast stuffed Long Island duckling with applesauce, a casserole, French string beans, a green salad, Green is appropriate. And then all, all was topped off with a huge frosted mint delight, essentially an ice cream sundae, and nuts and bonbons, of course. So now that I've made you thoroughly hungry, happy St. Patrick's Day. The simple point, though, I mean to make is that meals are essential parts of our lives. Not only to sustain us with food and nourishment and energy, but as occasions, as events, meals are for friendship, diplomacy, 
reconciliation. So we see fancy meals laid out for heads of states when they visit other countries. We, as families, gather for holidays and special events, and when we do so, it's usually kind of climaxed at the dinner table. Uh, when a wedding ceremony is complete, the guests usually typically share uh, refreshments or a meal. It's more than just food. Meals symbolize something. Meals symbolize union, unity, friendship. Even at Thanksgiving, which is renowned for meals that just carry on all day, we, we talk about trying at least to put aside our differences, our, our politics, our religion, and, and loving our families because we're eating together. We can do that for a few hours, can't we? On the passage Jane just read for us, the elders of Israel share a meal with God. The ultimate display of of fellowship and mercy. So we've been working through the Old Testament book of, of Exodus. Exodus recounts the true story of Israel being led out of slavery in Egypt to enter into covenant with God. And And that's what's happening now at Mount Sinai. That's what we've been looking at, this covenant. So Israel has heard God's commands, and now we see their response to his commands. We see in this passage the confirmation of the covenant, this relationship between God and his people. This is an absolutely stunning passage, church. So as we look at it, let's look at three things this morning. First point, the God of the covenant the God of the covenant. Second, the response to the covenant. The response to the covenant. And third, the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant. So first, the God of the covenant. Uh, If you think about this, this this, uh, text that we've been looking at has spanned several chapters, but it's really only spanned one day in real time in the Bible. So the past day or so at Sinai has been super eventful. Uh, Israel, back in chapter 19, has prepared to see the glory of God, and then the glory of God has come. Sinai, this grand mountain in front of them, has begun to shake uncontrollably under the weight of the presence of the glory of Yahweh, that personal name for the God of Israel. And then out of that cacophony, the voice of God has somehow spoken to his people's ears. And what has he given them? The Ten Commandments showing them what life as his people is going to look like now that they've been freed. They're going to live under his glorious rule and dominion. This is going to be their new life. But then in chapter 20, we see that after these Ten Commandments are uttered from the mountain, the people of Israel are so freaked out and overwhelmed with these kind of awful displays of this God's power and splendor that they just play, please stop. They beg God to stop talking and instead communicate directly to Moses for the time being. He'll be able to fill them in. And so that's what happens. Moses draws near to the presence of Yahweh, and from then the end of chapter 20, all the way through to the end of chapter 23, Yahweh gives Moses the book of the covenant. Specific instructions, sort of outworking of the Ten Commandments for his people. And this, in part, is the terms of the covenant agreement. So now, in chapter 24, he tells Moses, go back and tell the people what I've said. So how will they respond? 
In verse 3, we see Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Now, this is the first time Israel has heard what we have heard repeatedly the past few weeks as we've worked through this text. This may or may not have included the Ten Commandments. I don't know if Moses actually said that at this time, but, I mean, Israel has heard those before, haven't they? So the question is now, they've been presented with these terms of the covenant to be God's people, to have him as their God. These will be the terms. What are they going to do? And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so that starts a process in verse 4. That the wheels of the covenant-making process begin to turn more quickly. A ceremony begins. Uh, first of all, Moses writes down all he has heard from God. So like any agreement, this is a super important part of entering into a covenant, right? You need to get it in writing. Uh, the next morning, Moses gets up early, and the process continues, a sort of ratification ceremony of the covenant. Uh, he builds an altar right in front of Mount Sinai. Uh, Twelve pillars are made to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then men are sent to offer sacrifices on this altar. Uh, The ceremony concludes there in verse 9. As Moses, his brother Aaron, Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the leaders of Israel approach the mountain. And in verse 10, it just kind of takes your breath away. They saw the God of Israel. Contrast that with what we saw in chapter 19, just a day before, when God had warned his people not to draw near. Now he's commanding their representatives, their leadership, to come close. The God of the covenant making himself known. And you see the description of what they they see. It's kind of centered on the feet of God, isn't it? They see the, the, maybe the lower quarter of God and the platform especially of what he's standing on. Remember, God is not like us. God is spirit. We cannot see him. That's going to be reiterated later in Exodus. But here, somehow, not quite sure how, God is mercifully revealing and showing himself in some way, in some small portion, to his people. Why? To prove he's present to keep his covenant. God, as one of the parties of this covenant, is here. And do you see what he's standing on? There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Bring to mind the passage Eli read for us earlier from the prophet Isaiah, as he sees the throne room of God, this this sight of God ought to be the death of men. Yet these men do not die. Moses, most likely the author here, gives us illustrations for what we see, for what he saw. He says the floor was like sapphire. It was as clear as the sky. And then he uses another kind of illustration later in verse 17 when he says that the appearance of the glory of the Lord was what? It was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. See these words, as it were, like. You need to use similes when you're talking about Yahweh. 
So there are two parties in this covenant-making process. One is this mass of freed slaves congregating below the mountain, and the other is Yahweh, the God who has set them free, the God who has executed crazy signs and wonders on Pharaoh, the God of the universe. And they're reminded again that Yahweh is holy, that he is above, that he is different. And yet, and yet he condescends to have mercy on them. This is the God of the covenant, holy and merciful, transcendent and near. So that's one party in the covenant. Let's look at the other party, Israel, and see the response to the covenant. Point two, the response to the covenant. So in light of this God, in light of the terms that he's laid out, Israel agrees to obey him. Good move, Israel, right? Verse three. Uh, This echoes what they had said back in chapter 19, verse 8, kind of at the beginning of this this covenant-making process. They say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then after Moses goes through the parts of the ceremony to ratify the covenant, at least the first few parts, he writes it down, he offers sacrifices, Israel once again pledges their allegiance to him. You see that in verse 7? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. This is Israel agreeing to the terms. Israel agreeing to serve Yahweh alone. This is Israel entering into covenant with God. So they've seen his presence on the mountain. They've heard his voice booming from Sinai. They've been delivered by his grace from slavery. And now they're responding with just willing obedience. Notice the repetition of that word all. Israel will obey all God's commands. They're not going to piecemeal together the parts of what they've heard from Sinai that they like. The parts that they appreciate and that bring benefit to their life and then kind of jettison the things that they're less fond of and leave those behind. That's no option here. They're not even going to ask. They agree to nothing or everything God has told Moses. And dear church, I think there's good application for us here. Because every single Sunday, we gather as God's people primarily to hear his word. Much like Israel, we have heard God's word spoken even this morning already. We've heard it read. We have sung it back to the Lord. And so like Israel, every week we're faced with this decision. How are we going to respond? Do you realize, friend, that you take a risk coming to church? You obligate yourself to respond to what you hear from God's word. You come, you hear his truth from this book, and you must decide if you will obey it or you will reject it. Christian, especially, feel again the the weight of the burden of hearing God's word. If you've been in church for any number of years, I'm sure at some point you've kind of felt, you know, after hearing sermon after sermon, that God's words have become sort of dull, uninteresting. Just understand that that dullness is no fault of this book. It's the fault of our ears. 
Uh, we, throughout the week, attune our ears to the, to the news of the world, to the entertainment of Hollywood, to the self-worship of celebrity culture, to the stresses of our jobs, to the, to the voice of our own anxiety within us. And as we do so, the, the notes of God's words begin to kind of gradually fade into background noise in our hearts. That's why we gather here. We gather to remind one another this is what God has said. We gather to remind our, each other to sit under the authority of his word, to hear his truth, which is life-giving, and again, to submit our lives to its rule. And, and think about it. I, I think it's really interesting to see how after Israel has been characterized by nothing but grumbling and complaining in the wilderness, here there is no hesitation. There seems to be no disunity. They answer as one, we will obey. They're in full agreement. What has united them? It's God's word. Church family, listen to God's word. Don't just listen to my preaching or anybody else who stands up here. Listen to God's word. The most important part of any sermon, no matter how great the preacher, is when that preacher reads verbatim from this book. So do you listen? Do you come willing to obey? Do you arrive at church, sure, broken, distracted, all the ways we come to church, but do you come open to what God's word is going to say to you? Or has this truth become dull, boring, old news? If that's you this morning, Christian, don't rest easy. Plead with the Holy Spirit, even if you don't feel like it, plead with him to stir up your heart once more to love God's word, to convict you of your distance from it, to show you the beauty of the truth God has revealed here. This book contains the words of God's relationship with us as sinners. So we must read it. Strain forward to hear these words, to grasp these truths, to help one another live by them. And and these words is true freedom, it's true joy, it's true liberty, all these things that we are loving and grasping after in our lives. So let's take a cue from Israel and obey. Respond with with obedience and faith. So those are the two parties in the covenant, God and Israel. Let's spend the rest of our time then looking at the blood of the covenant. This is spectacular, church. See, part of the covenant ratification ceremony, as we see here, is a sprinkling of blood. Look in verse 5. Moses sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Uh, Burnt offerings were offerings where the animal was consumed entirely. And, And the significance of a burnt offering was that it showed on the part of those offering the offering, Israel, that they committed unrestrained and complete commitment to Yahweh. 
It showed how relationship and utter abandonment to God meant the need for blood sacrifice, for atonement, to atone for their sins. And the peace offering was kind of in a way, I guess, like an outworking of the burnt offering because it showed a peaceful, reconciled relationship. As one scholar says, it it celebrated covenant fellowship. So here we got the burnt offering and the peace offering, and Moses sends these guys to sacrifice these offerings. And then once all of that is completed, what are they going to do with the blood? Well, it's used in two ways. Look in verse 6. Moses takes half of the blood, and he kind of throws it against the altar, the place where the animals were sacrificed. This was to show God's judgment had been satisfied in that sacrifice. So that blood tossed onto the altar stood in for the blood his people deserved to shed for their sin. See, sin is serious, church. It's treason against God, as we've said before. So for it to be punished, life must be taken in payment. Whose life? the life of the sinner. This is only just. But here we see a stand-in life put in the place of Israelite sinners. We see this life of an animal taken to show that Israel's sin has been atoned for, even if just temporarily. So the blood is cast on the altar. Next, in verse 7, with the blood splattered on the altar, Moses turns to Israel And he reads the Book of the Covenant all over again, the terms. And after they once more promise to to obey it as it's in writing, he takes that other half of the blood and he tosses it on them. Showing that now that they have agreed to obey, they have agreed to the terms of the covenant, they are now consecrated, covered by blood, made holy to God. What does Moses call it? calls it the blood of the covenant. This is the completion of the covenant ceremony that began back in chapter 19. So you might remember there, God had said before the Ten Commandments, he had said, if you, Israel, will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, which you just decided to do, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here he's fulfilling all of that. Covered by blood, brought near to God, his people become a holy nation. And we see the result, the the outworking, the fruit of this covenant ratification right away. Do you see the change? So before, chapter 19 following, God's people had shrunk back in fear. But now, their leaders, their representatives are commanded to come close. They go up to the mountain and they see the feet of Yahweh. And then verse 11 is so important. They see him and do not die. Back in chapter 19, they couldn't pass certain limits set on the mountain lest they would be killed. And here, In chapter 24, there are still certain limitations in in place, of course, but God hasn't changed, but the situation has changed. 
The covenant has been completed. Blood has been shed. And so these men now approach Yahweh and they see him and he doesn't lay his hand on them. Look at the second part of verse 11. They beheld God and were slaughtered? No. They beheld God and were struck with plagues? No. They beheld God and ate and drank. This seems to be the the sort of final conclusive step in the confirmation of the covenant. A meal, a symbol of fellowship and welcome by God himself. Sacrifices have been made, sin has been covered, and now God's people are permitted and even invited to draw near. The covenant has been sealed with blood and now they eat. See the mercy of God. As our theme this morning says, God graciously enters into relationship with his people. He provides a way for them to be saved and forgiven so they can draw near. And in the coming weeks, we'll see how he draws near to them. How he grows to great lengths to dwell in their midst in sort of a mini Sinai, the tabernacle. Church, this is grace unparalleled, mercy unrestrained. It's not God lowering his standards. It's him bringing his people up to his standards through the blood of sacrifice, not by any merit of their own. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I I totally get it if you think this kind of talk of blood is weird and a bit gross. I think perhaps our ears as church folk have become so accustomed to the blood language that we don't realize how shocking it really is and how shocking it really should be. Because it is strange and it is gross, all right? Our sin is so disgusting to God that we deserve to have our blood shed and our lives taken in punishment for it. But in his justice and grace, God gives Israel sacrifices to temporarily atone for sin. And he has done the same for us, just not temporarily. See, every one of us present this morning must deal with our sin, our rebellion against God. So you too are a rebel against him. I'm sorry, that's not just what I say, that's what the Bible says. And that's the first thing you must recognize. The Bible tells us we want so much to be in control of our lives that we have sidelined God, rejected him, each one of us, and we deserve to die for that. But God has given a sacrifice for us. While we were yet sinners, God sent his son Jesus to be sacrificed on the cross for our sin. Jesus' blood was shed to satisfy God's justice. His blood was shed as the payment for our sins. His blood was shed to give us forgiveness and draw us near to God. Remember what Peter read for us earlier from the book of Hebrews. It says in chapter 9, verse 18 of Hebrews, that the first covenant, that's this one here in Exodus 24, the first covenant was inaugurated or confirmed or sealed with blood. We just looked at that. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, says Hebrews. 
But the point, if you keep reading Hebrews and you read the past parts of Hebrews, is the point Hebrews is getting at is that there is a better covenant that has come for God's people. A better covenant sealed with better blood. Hebrews says, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. So friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't understand yourself to follow after Jesus and to have believed this gospel, please understand your sin will either be the death of you or the death of Christ. Which will it be? Someone's blood needs to be shed. If you will turn to Jesus and repent of your sin, his blood will cover you. His death will stand in for you. Your sin will go on him and his righteousness will come on you and you will be saved. And Christian, see the cross of Christ foreshadowed here in Exodus 24 and glory in it. You've been sealed not by the blood of an of a animal sacrifice, but by the blood of the incarnate Son of God. Your covenant is so much better than the covenant of Exodus 24 we just looked at. And as one author points out, your covenant is also celebrated with a meal. Remember what our Savior said the night before he died. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, his disciples, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Recognize those words? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So as he was going to the cross to lay down his life as a sacrifice, Jesus symbolized the inauguration of the new covenant with a meal. With a meal we celebrate continually as a church. It's called the Lord's Supper. We'll celebrate it in a few weeks again. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. It's a meal only for those who have been brought near. It's a meal at God's table. The blood of Jesus has been shed so we can behold God and not die, but dine. Eat, rejoice, drink, celebrate. Desmond Alexander, a scholar on Exodus, writes, The concluding scene of Moses and the elders feasting on the mountain in the presence of God is a fitting climax to the sealing of a covenant that has as its purpose the establishment of a special relationship between Yahweh and Israel. See how special that was? Church, what a better meal we have. What a better covenant we have. We, the people of God, have been brought near. We don't stand far off and just watch our representatives go up on the mountain. We have been brought close. We have seen God in Christ. And he has saved us. 
your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Meals signify relationship, fellowship, even peace. And church, as unholy sinners united to a holy Christ, we have now been made new, holy, consecrated to God. Having had his blood sprinkled on us, we are now brought near to feast at his table. And one day that feast is going to be culminated in the marriage supper of the Lamb. What do we have to look forward to? Church, rejoice. Rejoice this morning that regardless of how you're feeling, regardless of what life is throwing at you, if you are in Christ, you have been brought near to a holy God, not to die, but to dine. You've been made sons and daughters of God, and you are welcome to his table forever. You've been brought near. Rejoice and rest. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the image of a meal that we all get, we all understand, and using that to symbolize the peace you have purchased for us. Lord, thank you for the shed blood of Christ that enables us to come close and rejoice in fellowship with you. And thank you that you promised this is going to be our reality forever. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in this, in our hospitality as a church family, in the Lord's Supper, and in looking forward ever more expectantly to when you will return and invite us to that final marriage supper of the Lamb. Be with us now as we sing your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.